Hi, I'm Mark Cuban, publisher of industry magazine Inside Film. I'm Jackie Keats, the editor of Inside Film. We're self-appointed experts in content and in making each other laugh. Welcome to our podcast on the tools, where we recommend things you should watch, listen to, read or scroll through. Uh, This week we're going to be talking about podcast Ballad of Billy Balls. TV series The Bureau and Book Far From The Tree. And Mike Tyson's YouTube channel and podcast Hot Boxing. It's our third episode. It is. We're back. <laughs> we're back. We, um, we haven't been told to stop yet, so we're still continuing. <laughs> last last week you spoke um, about a podcast you listened to, Mona Shallaby. Yeah. Am um, I nor- called Am I Normal? Am I Normal? And you sort of touched on friends. Um, I think it's the idea that every person has a hundred and fifty friends, which. Do you have 150 <laughs> Well, maybe. <laughs> on, on my Facebook and socials, I do. Um, but I was interested in best friends, and I think you said best friends were like 15. And um, Yeah. So I spent a bit of time going through uh, my socials, uh, my phone book, and I'm happy to report I have 16 best friends. Well, aren't you popular? <laughs> I am popular. Uh, and I include you in that. Oh, aren't you special? you're so kind. You're not in mind. <laughs> no, okay, so um, a podcast I've listened to, I think you've listened to as well, is uh, called yes. Ballad of Billy Balls. You forced me to listen to the first episode in your car. <laughs> I did. Um Oh, look, I really, really, I to really enjoyed this podcast. Uh, it's written and hosted by I.O. Tillett Wright. The backdrop for this story starts in New York City in 77, a city which was on the verge of bankruptcy and the level of social deprivation inspired so many movements and genres and the rise of amazing musicians and artists. Um, you know, artists like Andy Warhol, Rob Mablethorpe, and Jean Michel Basquiat. Basquiat was part of the Samo movement, a kind of graffiti duo, whose street art focused on social dichotomies such as wealth versus poverty, integration versus segregation, and generally the imbalance of class. At that time, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was kind of a cultural hotbed and where rap, punk and street art coalesced into, I guess, early hip-hop music culture. And if you lived there at that time in the South Bronx, you would have witnessed the birth of acts like Mexi Ray, uh, DJ Cool Herc. Um, and he was a DJ. He's quite fascinating because I read a bit about him. And he's probably the first person who bought two of the same records on two turntables uh, and started scratching and creating manual loops in dance clubs and also introduced. I guess a lot of the street hip hop artists. Um, then there was Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bambata. And across town, venues like CBGB's and Max's Kansas uh, were home to many emerging acts like, you know, Suicide, The Ramones, Patti Smith, Blondie, Talking Heads, which would have been like fucking amazing to be there at that time, I think. Um, just the fusion 
there was genres and there was a lot of really interesting things going on and a lot of it around social issues. So in this podcast, um, this is the backdrop setting, which kind of captures uh, the grime, filth and hope of those that gravitated to the city at that time, looking for whatever they were looking for. And for all intents and purposes, this is a setting for this, I don't know, modern Romeo and Juliet love story, which was set in 77. You know, Rebecca meets Billy, model meets musician, and their worlds intertwine. You know, he's a guy who's got street cred, understands the mean streets of New York, how to survive and how to make it in showbiz. And they both have ambitions that they're going to be stars. Then one day she comes home to find that Billy has been shot. The police are turning their place upside down. Billy survives for 10 days until suddenly, despite an optimistic recovery, he dies and is set to an anonymous burial ground. The writer and producer, I.O. Tillett Wright, somehow manages to convey in this podcast the hope and ambitions of two people who are desperately in love amongst this chaotic backdrop. Um the podcast is something that appears to be one thing at first and then morphs into something else. Uh, and if you're wondering what happened to those people who came to New York in around 77, Rebecca is a great subject. Excellent production. <laughs> uh, killer theme song. The theme song is the best part. It really uh, like, sets the scene and gets you like really excited. I think, you know, I.O. Tillett Wright did an amazing job in terms of, you know, normally podcasts are kind of set in a controlled environment and, you know, and what she does, she kind of is on the move and so they go and explore New York and interview people and she takes you, takes you there. Um, and, you know, she's it's a, it's a story, love story, where Rebecca doesn't ever really recover from Billy's death and just kind of exists. So 37 years later, I.O. Tillett Wright, finally comes to create this podcast and really wants to discover what happened and desperately attempts to give Rebecca some peace. But it's also a journey for I.O. Um, Tillett Wright. The podcast is uh, The Ballad of Billy Balls. Did you listen to all of it? Yeah, I listened to the whole thing. Did you love it? Yeah, of course. I think I think it's really it is it's it seems like it's going to be a true crime podcast and it sort of ends up being something quite different. But yeah, like it, the thing it's really good at setting the scene. So it you feel like you're there with them because like this they use sound the sound design really cleverly. Like it feels like you're in the street with them. Um and like when they go to Billy's grave, you it's like and they you're on the ferry with them and stuff like that. It's quite but, bleak, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is a bit bleak. Oh, not not entirely. Rebecca is also just has like the most incredible voice. So you <laughs> want to listen to her talk constantly. But do you want to? Kind of reminds me of Nancy Spungett, you know, um, the girlfriend of Johnny. Was it Johnny Rotten or Lydon, whatever his name was, uh, from the Sex Pistols? Um, and she's a woman who obviously has seen a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> yes. And really hasn't emerged from, I guess, that person she was in 1977. It's 19 almost like her, when Billy Balls died, she just stopped progressing Living. in life, yeah. Yeah. Despite having, despite having a child and all these things. So, But, yeah, you, well, do you want to give away that Rebecca is? No, uh, I don't <laughs> think so. I, I, I think we'll just leave some stuff, you know. 
in the box. Um, but look, really great podcast. I think a great story and yeah, I just the production for me really got me. Like you know, I put the headphones on and it took me on a a ride, a great ride, and um, I loved it a lot. Mm. Now, what are you watching? Oh, so all my French speakers out there, I'm going to butcher some French as <laughs> so I talk about this show, but so I apologize in advance. But I've been, I've watched all five seasons of French series The Bureau, the Bureau which is on SBS, um, and I highly recommend it. So it's created by Eric Rochon, and that's probably not how you pronounce it, but bear with me. It's set within the uh, DGSC, which is the French equivalent of the CIA. Specifically, it's within the Bureau of Legends, where basically they train and handle deep cover agents or spies on long-term missions overseas. So it's based on real accounts of former French spies. And I guess the main character is a man named Guillaume, um, codenamed Malatru, who returns to France six years after six years undercover in Syria. And he comes back, he can't really connect with his former life, including his daughter who when he left was, you know, a little kid and now she's 18. Um, And a huge part of this is because when he was in Syria, he had an affair with this married woman named Nadia El Mansour and not related to his mission at all. He just sort of fell in love with her while he was there. But because of this, he kind of finds himself sort of unable to give up his alias and compelled to contact her. Like he's meant to destroy all forms of identification that have this uh, alias on like Paula Fredbrett was his name. He can't, he hides it and he keeps an email that was connected to him and stuff like that. Oh, he's a protocol breaker. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, and then Nadia shows up in Paris and he begins to see her again and life sort of unravels from there and um, including for the DGSC because, yes, protocols are there for a reason apparently. They are. <laughs> But that, like, that's the main story. But you also sort of follow other characters within the bureaus. They go about their mission. So there's especially like a young woman named Marina, who's probably in her late twenties or early thirties, who's training to go undercover in Iran, and she's really green, and she's sort of our entryway into the world and what it means to be a spy. And you sort of get a sense of what that means for you personally, because like in one of the early episodes, her handler marie jean talks to her like the friends that you make undercover they're still your enemies because they make you drop your guard and they make you vulnerable and fallible and you sort of see this happen for her for all all, like across the seasons grappling with this you meet people while you're on missions that you like but you might be trying to get information from them or they might just be someone who your alias is friends with and then anyway so she says to her like people you really like must be destroyed but um I don't know, it's just a really cleverly crafted, tense political thriller that goes across France to Iran, Russia, Syria, and it's really content, like inspired by or informed by contemporary political events. Um, How many seasons so far? There's five seasons. But I wow. think it, what it, that, well, it ends at the end of the fifth season, like so it's over, it's finished. I think it ended last year. But I think why why it's really successful is it kind of, avoids the kind of the tropes of the spy genre. It's, genre it's really nuanced like it feels like a realistic account of what it's like to be a spy and like how they're trained and the trade craft they use they use and 
Like I would, I've pictured to heaps of people like this is a more realistic version of Homeland, which at times like I, I liked Homeland, but it sometimes it bordered on this sort of ridiculous. And like it, it's just really refreshing that that this is French and not American. Like I think we always watch spy things that are set in the CIA. And like, but like, it's a nice slant. I guess the big question is, could you be a spy? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Because when I watched this show, I became like kind of obsessed by the idea, like, could I be a spy? And like, even so, if you go on, I think, and like by even saying this out loud, I'm knocking myself out of the running. But if you go on like the ASIO website, there's like a, uh, animation or it's not animation it's like a video training thing you can do and you, it gives it's sort of like a test and the Australian government really uses this to see whether you would have skills to be hang on, a, hang on. a good so spy what, so you go to the ASIO site and there's a test yeah it's like a if you're meant to like you walk through an airport and there's all these different things happening and you're trying to uh, you're meant to notice things that happen around you and patterns and like like some you peep things out of the ordinary and or and then they go to another part where you're sitting in a crowded restaurant and there's five different conversations happening and you're like with someone but you're trying to listen to a conversation that's happening on a, the other table at the same time so and then you get a little score and then if you want to apply to become I think it's ASIO or the, I forget the name of the one that is like ASIO is within Australia but there's ASIS or something like this this overseas one and yeah you, you can use that code if you want to apply so oh, to give it a go. <laughs> so I did this, and I, but I cheated it and did it again the second time to get a better score. But I, I'm not going to apply to be a spy because I think I am actually a terrible liar. And nor do you do have I, to lie? I guess you're making <laughs> well, you up everything, to, aren't you? Well, I think that it's sort of talked about this in the show. It's almost like you're not lying because you're believing the lie yourself. So that's that's how you. And you weave into your alias parts of who you are. So it's almost like it's not a lie because the person is you, but it's also not you. It's like and- me and my music thinking I'm a musician, but <laughs> unfortunately I'm not. A rapper. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, you should play some of the... No, I will not. That, is, it- uh, that was a lockdown hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's, it's, you can sort of see also like his daughter... Um, Guillaume's daughter is sort of becomes part of the show and you can see how it affects her not being able to know what is really going on with her dad um, and just how isolating and confusing it is for her. So, yeah. Um, I watch, remember we watched um, The Americans. Yeah, is The it, Americans. It, is it, it similar to that? Um, I would say it feels more realistic again. Like The Americans, some of the stuff that happens in there, I'm like that. It feels like it wouldn't have been real. But, yeah, it's a similar kind of vibe for sure. The Americans is also a great show. A great show, but it was just a house of lies. <laughs> yes, and, it like, was... their whole relationship was a lie and everything is a lie, but then it becomes a real relationship. So I wonder, I wonder what happens if that is, like, if that's your chosen career and you have this career path, I mean, what happens in retirement? Like, do you just see ya, sign off, and then, or do you just disappear? Well, that that is there also a plot line in the show where one of them is sort of heading towards retirement, and then he's trying to grapple with that. So, yeah, I don't. 
it would be so strange. And then you can't ever talk to anyone about anything you did in your career and you probably have a fake, like probably you tell people you were a diplomat or whatever you were. But like, I don't know. I don't know what you would tell. You can't, you can't be honest with your children. You can't be honest with your partner. You can't be honest with anyone in your life. I have a friend who I think is. A spy? Yeah. I can't, of course I <laughs> will, I would not reveal the name. I think I told might, you about this, but. um, You may she, be murdered. She I'm works in media, but has, you know, I mean, was in the Middle East, was in a whole bunch of places. And I'm thinking, why are you there? I don't understand. Um. And she sort of disappears for long periods of time. And, uh, Is she fluent and then, in multiple languages? <laughs> and then returns. No, she's such a yobbo. Um, That's a good cover. <laughs> it's, like, it's bizarre. <laughs> anyway, so I'll just throw it out there. If I'm gone, you know why. If I go missing. <laughs> I feel like we, you maybe need to scrub this part out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What have you been watching? That was what I was watching. Oh. I could tell you what I've been reading. <laughs> what, what you're reading? What are you reading? <laughs> well, I, to be honest, I read this book actually a really long time ago, but uh, like a while ago, my f- same friend who is in charge of the WhatsApp book club group also asked me over drinks at the pub to like name the book that has impacted me the most profoundly or something like that. It was, um, and this book was the first thing that came to mind. So the book is called Far From the Tree, Parents, Children and the Search for Identity by Andrew Solomon. And I actually read this book because I saw Andrew Solomon give the opening night address at the Sydney Writers Festival back in, I think, 2014. So it's a really, it's been a while since I read this book. But it stayed with me ever since. And, like, Without overstating it, it really sort of impacts how I think about certain things. I mean, obviously, particularly parenting, given that that's the topic of the book. But um, and that's despite me not having children of my own, so I can maybe sound like an uninformed git talking here. But I mean, but did that did that change your views of your parents? Well, that's it. I think so. I think so. And. I made my dad read this book actually and and he loved it too and he made my auntie read it as well. Um, I think so. I think you sort of see, I, I think that, and I think that's part of getting older as well, that you start to realise that your parents are just human beings and make mistakes when they <laughs> raise you. Very, it's very hard to see them as human beings. Well, that's it. But then as you get older. like my Especially father, your dad, the duckweed killer. <laughs> My parents just bought a farm and Mark, Mark thinks that my dad doesn't know how to clean the dam properly. <laughs> He's killing the duckweed. But um, essentially this book, uh, Solomon documents the experience of 300 parents whose children sort of differentiate from them sometime, somehow. So this it includes like children who are geniuses, who are transgender, deaf, have Down syndrome, have dwarfism autism um, are criminals so parent they have uh, kids that grow up to be criminals of some sort um, kids that have schizophrenia um, and also children that are born of rape but um, there's like a background into why he started writing this book so 
Solomon wow. is, is gay and he had like, uh, so I think he's, I think he's born in 1963. And so he had like a pretty rough time grappling with this as a child, like particularly his parents kind of struggled to understand and accept him. Um, and this is like, despite the fact that they were Jewish and, you know, obviously experienced some prejudice in that way. And like, he also had dyslexia as a child, but his mom really advocated for him in that way. But when it came to him being gay, he didn't, she didn't support him in the same way. Like he said, I wish she had advocated for me as a gay man as much as she'd advocated for my dyslexia, for instance. There's then, always that that argument too, isn't there, that question nature or nurture? Well, yeah, exactly. But then, then so but then he, when he's 19, he puts himself he puts himself into surrogate therapy, so where he is like encouraged by quote-unquote doctors to like have sexual encounters with women to try to cure him. And he talks about like... <laughs> Like this whoop, like he had to crawl around naked on the all floors, um, all fours while this woman is watching him. And then like he talks about like lying, staring at the ceiling, feeling dead while this like woman is jumping up on, on top of him going like, you're inside of me, you're inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> but like he's like, he, then he goes on to actually have relationships with women in his real life, which he talks about that he loved them and felt like had felt intimate feelings towards them. But it just is, he just was all, the time denying that he was gay and so like it's not till years later that he really sort of accepts his identity as a gay man and then he finds the gay in the gay rights movement particularly his tribe and he finds other people in New York that are like him and he and comes to terms with who he is but um it, going on to how why he started writing this book he in like the 90s early 90s 93 he's put on assignment as a journalist for the New York times to cover deaf culture. And he starts to realize like most deaf children are born to hearing parents and their parents kind of prioritize their children functioning in the speaking world, like kind of fitting into their lives. And then like a lot of deaf people then go on to stumble onto the deaf community in adolescence. And then they sort of like him, they find their own tribe, they're, united by this shared difference and also in deaf the deaf community it's often with language so that is like sign language and so with these other deaf people their different isn't difference isn't an aberration it's just part of who they are it's their identity so he gets interested in this idea that we have vertical identities that we inherit from our parents so either biologically or culturally so we have like race religion normally language, like we usually speak the same language as our parents, not always, but most of the time, uh, nationality. And then we also have horizontal identities. So these are traits that maybe our parents don't have at all. So they could be, and they're not like, they're either innate, like sexuality, or if you're a genius and sometimes disability, or maybe they're more acquired, like criminality. You'll sort of learn to be a criminal through your, through your life. So that, I guess that's like the nature versus nurture thing. But he said, like, families tend to reinforce, virt like, vertical identities. So, like, his family might might have reinforced the idea that they're Jewish, but they op oppose kind of horizontal ones. Cause Which is strange because, I mean, obviously you wouldn't know unless family members came out, you know, and a lot of them didn't come out. I mean, they, they hid that stuff. 
I think every family had, you know, a couple of spinsters and bachelors. Yeah, just you like old I mean? Auntie Blah. That never, yeah. Yeah. Who's been living with Auntie Blah for 20 <laughs> just years. Just her very good friend. <laughs> just very good friends. Um, yeah. So they talk about like the vert- like vertical identities are respected, but your horizontal ones are kind of sometimes treated as flaws, whether they're by your family or by society. So it then sounds you- like the horizontal um, aspects are equally as important, if not more. Well, exactly. They're just like another part of your identity. But so then he, like through this book he talks to parents who have like this difference somehow from their children and it sort of it deals with like identity and what is normal, identity politics and I guess like the love between parents and ch- their children. But I think what is really striking and what makes this book really moving is it, it sort of it becomes really clear that it's often that difference is what unites us as humans and like in that sense it becomes sort of about what it is to be human it's like uh it says something like uh i wrote it down but like difference unites us while each of these difference uh, uh, each of these experiences can isolate those who are affected together they compose an aggregate of millions whose struggles connect them profoundly the exceptional is ubiquitous but to be entirely typical is the rare and lonely state um, but there's like there's also like some of there's really high profile subjects in this book as well. Like probably one of the most powerful parts of the book. Like he interviews the parents of the children who committed the Columbine massacre. Like it's not oh. it's not an easy book to read. Like it's a really it sounds fascinating. It's a really long book. Like a, like I I think it took me six months to read this because like the, particularly the section about children born of rape. It like every paragraph is emotionally excruciating and like really difficult it's just like imagine the experience of profoundly loving your child despite the fact that they are growing up to resemble uh, like the man that raped you either in physical like physically or some in some cases in personality as well um so yeah so I had to stop every so often like read something really frivolous and fluffy but it's really deftly written and it's profoundly moving and like it took Solomon 10 years to write this book and so he started writing it initially to sort of understand his own parents and sort of like to explore that pain and regret he felt for his early life when he didn't accept his pers- um, sexu- sexuality and sort of why he didn't. Um, but at, by the end he's become a parent himself so it sort of becomes this full circle moment. Um, and it's interesting like he talks about his own parents. He's like he realises through his life like, you can, it says it in the book, he said, you can love someone but not accept him. You can accept someone but not love him. Mm. I wrongly felt the flaws in my parents' acceptance as deficits in their love. Now I think about their primary experience was having a child who spoke a language they'd never thought of studying. And he sort of explains that again about this is sort of the experience of lots of parents in the book. Like he says, uh, Rumi said that the light enters you at the bandage place. And this book's conundrum is that most of the families described here have ended up grateful for experiences they would have done anything to avoid. That's particularly, I think, true of some of the parents that have children with disability. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, like there's a documentary made on this book as well, but I haven't seen that. I actually only learned that when I was like sort of researching some stuff to talk about here. And I quickly looked up some of the reviews and they were a bit middling, which was a bit disappointing, but this book is really, really fantastic. Um, Yeah. No, I th- think it's really, um, really interesting. I have to say, for me, when I moved to Sydney, um, 
finished uni, moved to Sydney and didn't have any friends and I got this cadet job. Now you've got 15 of them. Now I've got 15 best friends. But <laughs> I'd never forget there was um, uh art director, Eddie Parada, and um, he could see that on the Friday evening I didn't know anyone and he said, why don't you come out with us? Um, and so I did and basically all my friends were gay. And so I had this amazing time with Eddie and his friends and, um, you know, kind of found a new tribe and, uh, yeah, it's great. I think that's very true for me as well. I think when I first moved to Sydney, some of the first people that were my friends were gay men and I think I spent every single weekend at Stonewall for about 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) You're still at Stonewall. Uh, Yeah, the last two years with COVID, but... I'll be back soon. <laughs> um, what's the name of that book again? Uh, it's called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. I definitely will read that. So I've stumbled across uh, a podcast and there's a, a YouTube channel by the same name called Hot Boxing. Is the it G? about weed? <laughs> well, look, you know what? I didn't even know that term existed and when I spoke to people about it they're like what people in a car smoking a bong and I was like what um with the windows up I can tell you it's not about that um look it was an amazing thing so uh, a friend of mine who's a boxer suggested this site and so um all this podcast youtube channel and it is Sensational. I won't lie, I enjoyed a bit of MMA and boxing, but was never really into wrestling, even at school. I just felt it was too weird. It was like playing Twister with sweaty, stinky boys. Oh, you're wrestling the girls? <laughs> no, there were no girls. It was just, you know, sort of adolescent stinky boys, you know. <laughs> like, you know, I don't want them popping their zits on my back as they're squeezing me or whatever. <laughs> um, it was gross. So the podcast is regardless of what you think about Mike Tyson, he hosts it. The podcast's amazing. Uh, it's perhaps more like an intimate therapy session and the overarching theme is about struggle, redemption, you know, drive and motivation. I think if I was a, a writer, screenwriter or, you know, looking for inspiration and, and a story idea, this site would be high on my list. It's really, really impressive. Um, he's got, you know, people like Snoop Dogg, the comedian Bill Burr, Eminem, Piers Morgan, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., Sugar Ray Leonard, Dennis Rodman, Roseanne Barr, Mickey Rourke, goes on. And he's a really good interviewer and he's really raw. And so it's not about boxing. He does have some boxers on there. He does have some MMA fighters. But I think the 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 podcast and the channel is really about people's struggle and how they get from where they were to where they are. And and even when they get to that point of success, the pinnacle of success, you know, then, you know, they, they retire from boxing or, you know, they're, they're not writing hit songs anymore and they become something else and they have a different persona. And also, I guess, you know, that, transition from, you know, making a lot of money and being really famous and popular to, you know, not being so famous and not being so popular, not having so much money or maybe making some bad decisions. It's like reckoning with becoming 
like aging in a way. It is. It's very much that. Um, and so anyway, I would urge anyone who wants to go to this site to find the episode with Sugar Ray Leonard firstly. Um, I found this particular app really difficult uh, to listen to at times because just that struggle, uh, struggle can be brutal and difficult to comprehend. I was really fascinated by Tyson's tales and, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard was a hero of his and he revealed that, you know, he was in juvenile detention at age 13 and, you know, he watched Sugar Ray Leonard win the World uh, uh, Welterweight Championship in 79 and how Tyson, who starts crying, kind of reveals all this stuff of, you know, he was so lost and, and what had happened to him and how watching Sugar Ray Leonard really changed his life and gave him this ambition that he wanted he wanted to box. And anyway, then Sugar Ray Leonard's looking at him and kind of sideways glance and you don't know what he's thinking, you know, is this guy mad or and then he reveals that he was a survivor of child sex abuse and, you know, addictions to cocaine and alcohol. And Tyson then talks about, you know, the contrast between being a feared athlete, which he misses, and the man he is today in retirement, and that he does feel empty. What did he say? He said, I was an annihilator. It was what I was born for. Now those days are gone and it's just empty. Just incredible to watch. And, you know, one of on one of the um, – well, there was a, a series where they basically hitched up the caravan and drove around with this mobile podcast studio. Oh, my God. It was really weird because, you know, normally he's he's there, he's smoking, you know, I don't know what he's smoking, and it's a, it's a studio, proper studio, and suddenly they're in this kind of weird caravan, and that's when Eminem joins them and, and he does an interview. Really fascinating, amazing stories, and the surprising thing, is that everyone who comes on is completely raw. And it's like they leave. They're, they're obviously, they're fighters and they're masculine and, and, you know, some are quite aggressive people, but they kind of seem to leave that at the door. I really recommend having a look at that site. So that was um, hot boxing with uh, Mike Tyson. <laughs> I think that's it. Yes, it is it. Well, I'll see you next week. <laughs> I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.